And I've said before, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 all deal with the nation of Israel. Kind of a parenthetical insertion into the book of Romans where Paul begins to make some application of some of the things that he has taught and how they apply to the nation of Israel as a whole. And so in Romans 9, we started that chapter with a discussion of Paul's burden for his own people, amen, his desire to see his kinsmen after the flesh to be saved, to be redeemed. He, he went so far as to say, I could wish that, that I would myself be cut off from God if that was what it would take to save my kinsmen. And then after having said that, we talked about in the next passage and, and the second lesson that we did from Romans chapter 9, we talked about uh, the nation of Israel and the privileges and promises that God had given her that made that nation different from any other people on the face of the planet. They, they're different from anybody else. Their heritage is different. They, they have been divinely chosen and blessed by God. And we ended that statement, that segment, with a statement that not all who were a part of natural, physical Israel were a part of spiritual Israel. We said there's a difference between being born as a child of Abraham and becoming a child of God. And there, there is an important distinction there that many of the Jews of Paul's day didn't recognize. They thought that since God had chosen the Jews to serve him, to be the only nation under heaven that was ever given the revelation of the mighty God, to be the only ones that ever understood there's one God and only one, to be the only ones to whom the law was ever given, to whom the glory was ever shown, that that, that status of privileged nation meant that they were automatically saved. That if they were the descendants of Abraham, they would even withstand Jesus face to face and tell him, who are you to tell us that we need to repent? We're the children of Abraham. The Jews of Paul's day assumed that salvation was a part of their inheritance from Abraham, but nothing could have been further from the truth. And Paul points out that, that God is sovereign. He chose the nation of Israel the physical lineage of Abraham for his purpose. He chose them to serve him. But that does not obligate him to save every member of that group. Salvation is and always has been based on faith and obedience to the revealed plan of God. Salvation has never been based on a carnal heritage. It's never been based on what your name is or what your position is or what your social status is. Uh, amen. If that was what salvation was going to be based on, we would be excluded. We wouldn't be allowed to be a part of it. God doesn't, he's not a respecter of persons and he's not a respecter of the things that impress men. If the Jews did not accept the revealed plan of God, if they did not obey the word of God, if they did not offer sacrifices for their sins according to the plan of God that was given to them, then God was not obligated to save them. His promise to Abraham would be fulfilled regardless of the salvation of the Jews. He chose a nation. He chose a people on the face of the earth that he would use to bring forth the Messiah. And that purpose would be fulfilled regardless of whether they obeyed God. Amen. If the majority of individual Jews reject Jesus Christ and lose out with Jews as was the and lose out with God as was the case when Paul began to write this and talking about the heartbreak that he has because so many of his nation are blinded to the Messiah. They didn't, they didn't recognize the day of their visitation. They, they've missed who Jesus is. That does not affect the truthfulness of God's promise to Abraham. He used the nation of Israel to produce the Messiah. And by so doing, he fulfilled the promise 
that he made to Abraham. Amen? That's a national thing. It was a national promise out of your lineage. I'm going to bring forth a nation, a chosen nation, a people. And all the people on the face of the earth are going to be blessed by them. And whoever blesses them, I'll bless. And whoever curses them, I'll curse. Those are national promises. But salvation is not a national issue. It is a personal issue. And it was and is entirely possible to belong to God's chosen people, to be a Jew, without becoming one of God's chosen children. Amen? That's the main point of the passage we're going to cover this morning. It begins in Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 7. We'll go through verse 13. I'll read it all, and then we'll break it down. It says this, Neither... Because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children? But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That's our text for this morning. We'll begin in verse 7. And because it was so long, I'm going to reread verse 7, then we'll talk about it. It said this, Neither because they're the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So immediately, right off the bat, the point of this whole passage is established. Just because someone is a physical descendant of Abraham or an heir of God's promises, those national promises that come through Abraham, that that does not mean that they are a spiritual child of God. Amen? Just because they, they are an heir of the national promise does not mean that they're an heir of salvation. To drive that theme home, and even, I'll go further, it, just because they're an heir of of Abraham as a patriarch, as a father, does not even mean that they're a part of the national promise. And that's really the point that's being made here. Not just because they're the seed of Abraham, but just those that come from Isaac are called. And to drive that point home, Paul points out that not every descendant of Abraham physically is a part of the promise of God. I mean, God said of Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, but not all of his children are a part of that great nation. God called Abraham and his seed, but he was very exclusive about which part of Abraham's seed would inherit the promise. Abraham had children by Hagar. He had a child, Ishmael. He had children by another woman named Keturah. But only the physical descendants of Abraham and Sarah, which was Isaac, That's the only seed that was counted towards the promise. Everybody else was eliminated. Nobody else was considered to be a part of God's promised nation. Ishmael's children, for instance, could trace their lineage back to Abraham. They could establish the fact that they are indeed the children of Abraham, but they had no part in the promise of God. And so Paul's point from the outset, if God was selective about who was a part of the natural nation of Israel, how much more is he selective about who is a part of the spiritual Israel? If he is exclusive about who he includes in the lineage of the promise that he gave to Abraham, how much more exclusive is he about who he considers to be his own? That's the point. That's why the second statement narrows it down. But in Isaac 
shall thy seed be called. That's an exact quotation from the Greek translation of Genesis 21 and 12. And they are the words of God as he's explaining to Abraham why Ishmael can't be part of the promise. If you'll remember the story, when God begins to, 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 to state these kind of things and tell what he's going to do, Abraham says, wait a minute, you know, I already have a son. I've got Ishmael. Why can't Ishmael? Ishmael was 13 years old. Why can't Ishmael be the promise? Why can't you go ahead and let, I, I've, I've produced a son. I have an heir. But God said Ishmael won't be the seed. Ishmael's not going to be part of the promise. And eventually Ishmael's going to be put out of the camp. Eventually you're going to cut all ties with Ishmael. And this is why. Because the, the promise is restricted. It is exclusive to Isaac. The, that's the point. It's, it's an exclusive kind of statement. Through Isaac alone, not through Ishmael, not through any of the children that Abraham would produce with, with Keturah, not with anybody else, but through Isaac alone, only his seed would lay claim to the covenant of Abraham. One thing to point out here is that we're talking about carnal heritage. The seed of Isaac would be counted as the nation of God. They would be God's chosen people, the people that God would use to serve him, to bring forth the law, to bring forth the prophets, and to bring forth the Messiah. That would be the avenue that God would use. Salvation would still come through faith and obedience. Just because they were a part of that chosen nation did not guarantee their salvation. There is a distinction, and it's established in the verse prior to this, this segment. Where we ended last week, there's a distinction between natural Israel and spiritual Israel. They are separate entities. And at this juncture, we're talking about national or natural Israel, what it meant to be a child of Abraham after the flesh, Paul's kinsman according to the flesh. That was exclusive. You had to be of the seed of Isaac to be a part of that. So also is that spiritual Israel exclusive. But we're not dealing with the spiritual Israel in this passage, we're dealing just with the, the natural Israel. So verse 8 says, That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted for the seed. Not all of those who are the children of Abraham after the flesh. Not all of those who can trace their blood back and say, I've got the blood of Abraham flowing through my veins. Not all of those were the children of God. Ishmael was Abraham's son by Hagar, but he's not the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. His descendants, his offspring, they would be the descendants of Abraham after the flesh, but they would never be a part of the nation of Israel. That distinction belongs to the children of promise those children that would be born of Isaac who would be the fulfillment of God's promise to give Abraham a son then verse 9 says for this is the word of promise at this time this is the promise at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son so God's promise was exclusive Sarah would bear the child Sarah would be the mother. It would be Sarah that would fulfill the promise. That's why Ishmael must be excluded. That's why Ishmael must be cut off. Isaac alone was the fulfillment of the promise. Any other children of Abraham, by any other mother, by any other relation, none of those would ever satisfy that promise. It was exclusive. It was Abraham and Sarah. When Abraham would have other children, those other children would not be counted in the nation of Israel. So from the outset, from the beginning, God established that there would be a distinction between being a natural heir of Abraham and being the ultimate heir of the promise that was given to Abraham. 
not all those who were the sons of Abraham were the nation of Israel. That doesn't mean that, that God is not fair in his dealings with men and women. It simply means that God is sovereign and he can decide which of Abraham's children he's going to bless. He can decide how that blessing flows. He can exclude whomever he wants to exclude from that national blessing. He alone determines how his plan is going to unfold. And he alone selects what lineage of Abraham will be allowed to become that nation that will serve him. That demonstrates the justness of God in rejecting all who turn their back on the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of their heritage, regardless of who they are or what they've done. God reserves the right to choose the way. God reserves the right to choose the course. God has determined that he will have a people in this world. And he has determined what it takes to be a part of that group of people. And it is exclusive. And he has the right because he is sovereign to reject anyone who tries to come. You won't come to God any other way but through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the fact that they were descendants of Abraham was never enough to guarantee anyone salvation. God has determined that eternal salvation comes through faith in God and obedience to the revealed plan of God. That's the only way to be saved. In Paul's day, when Paul was writing this, that plan was the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death of the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. One must repent of their sins. One must be baptized in his name and be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It doesn't matter whose children they are. It doesn't matter what their spiritual heritage is. It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter their social status. It doesn't matter what their last name is. It doesn't matter who they are. They will never become the children of God unless they fulfill the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, verse 10 says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac. So, verses 10 through 13 provide a second example of the same principle. The story of Jacob and Esau serves to strengthen and clarify the sovereignty of God in determining the exclusivity of his promise. Both Jacob and Esau were children of Abraham born of Isaac. They meet the requirement that we just set forth. They're in the lineage of the promise. They're in the lineage of that that God has said that he's going to bless. But God chose in his own sovereign power to restrict the line to Jacob and to reject Esau, to to put him aside. And God made that choice before they were ever even born. That's what verse 11 says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. God's choice to make Jacob the heir, to to exclude the lineage of Abraham even further. It it first comes from Abraham to Isaac, but now we reach this, this branch of Jacob and Esau, and he excludes it even further. He doesn't do that on the basis of good works or evil works. It's not because one brother is better than the other. God made that choice before they were born. Ultimately, the decision of who was included in the nation of Israel belonged to God. It was not based on the actions of men. (coughs) Forgive me, my voice is trying to act up. The reason why Paul includes the story of Jacob and Esau in this is because some might point to Isaac and the exclusiveness of God's promise and say, well, God's choice there was obvious. After all, 
they may have been brothers. Isaac and Ishmael may have been brothers, but they had different mothers. And God had specified that Sarah was a part of the promise. And so it, it was a no-brainer. He chose Isaac over Ishmael because Isaac was the only one that fit the full parameters. But making that kind of an argument makes it where the exclusiveness of the promise is based on the actions of Abraham and Sarah, not on the sovereign will of God. So Paul brings up an example that you can't do that with. Jacob and Esau, these boys had the same mother. Listen, I don't want to be uh, crude, but I'm going to be frank. They were conceived at the same time. That's what he means when he says that they were, they were conceived of one. That one is, is not just the individual, it's the timing. There was only, they were conceived at the same time. They, were, they came from the same daddy. As a matter of fact, they were twins. They were in the same womb together. And before they were ever born, God chose Jacob over Esau. That choice was a function of God's sovereign will. God chose to limit natural Israel to a specific lineage. And the choice of that lineage was a sovereign act of God. God made that decision. God made that choice. That does not mean that God chose who would be saved. That does not mean that before they were born, God decided which one of them or, or if one of them would be saved. This is not predestination. Salvation is not the issue here. We're not talking about spiritual Israel. We're talking about natural Israel. We're not talking about inclusion in the spiritual promises of God. We're talking about inclusion in the na national promise of God. And God was very particular about the exclusiveness of the lineage of natural Israel. He limited to a specific lineage of his own choosing. And Paul emphasized the sovereignty of that action by pointing out the fact that the choice was made before the boys were ever even born. If God is that exclusive about the natural heritage of Abraham, then he will certainly be just as exclusive about the spiritual heritage of Abraham. God has clearly delineated a means, a way, a course, a path to become part of the church, to become a part of the children of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is exclusive. And before you get bogged down in why God chooses one brother over another, you need to stop and recognize what the point is here. The point is God has the right to restrict things. God has the right to say there's only one way. God has the right to say it's going to go the way I said it's going to go and it's not going to go any other way. I'm going to bless Jacob and I'm going to reject Esau and I don't have to answer to anybody over that because I'm God. And the same God that has that right has the right to say, if you're going to come to me and you're going to be a part of my kingdom, you're going to come in the way that I say you have to come. You're going to come through the cross. You're going to come through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. You're not going to get there by any other means. You're not going to meet God on your own terms. You're not going to become a part of the church just because you decided this is how you get into heaven. Amen. You're going to get there by God's terms. You're going to get there... In in the way that God says, God is sovereign. He sets the course. He made the rules, if you will. And he decided who would and who would not be a part of the nation of Israel. And he decides who will and who will not be a part of the church by that exclusive path that he's chosen. The gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There is no other means of entry into the kingdom of heaven 
everyone must repent. Everyone must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And the scripture said that everyone who does those two things will be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. There's no other way. It is exclusive. That's okay. God is exclusive. He reserves that right. That's not unfair. That's not mistreating anybody. That's a function of God's sovereign power. God can decide before Jacob and Esau are ever born. I'm going to bless Jacob. I'm going to choose Jacob. I'm going to put my promise uh, into Jacob's lineage. And I'm going to reject Esau altogether. And so God has made a way. It's his way. You come to God on God's terms. You don't come to God on your own terms. You don't, you don't search out a way that you can satisfy God. You come to God according to His terms. And He requires that any and all that desire to come to Him come through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. There's no other way. Amen. Don't buy into this spiritual new age idea that there are a lot of different ways to get to God. We may all worship different deities, but really we all worship the one same supreme deity. And, and when we get to heaven, we're going to find out he is this and he is that. And he was baloney. Jesus said, I am the way. And the only way, there's only one way to get to God, and it's coming through me. And Paul's making that point very plain by saying, God has the divine, sovereign ability to say, I'm going to restrict it. I'm going to limit it. I'm going to make a way, and it is the only way that my blessing is going to flow. Verse 12 says, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve younger. Before the children were ever born, God revealed his will to Rebekah. Before they were ever born, before Esau was born first and Jacob came out second with his hand already wrapped around his brother's ankle trying to be the first one out. Before anybody knew that, that Jacob is hungry for this thing and that Esau is going to despise this thing. Before anybody understands that. The younger son was chosen by God to become the greater of the two. And he told the mother before they were ever born that he had already made that decision. The older son would serve the younger because God chose Jacob, not Esau, to carry forward the lineage of the promise of God. The prophecy that was given there the elder shall serve the younger. That prophecy applies mainly to the children and the descendants of those two men, Jacob and Esau. We don't, we don't find anywhere in Scripture where Esau actually serves Jacob. As a matter of fact, the way that prophecy was written in Genesis 25 and 23, it says, two nations, not two boys, but two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It's about, a, it's about national Israel. It's about the natural Israel. It's not about the spiritual man. This isn't predestination. This isn't God deciding before somebody's born whether or not they're going to be saved. This is about God deciding before somebody was born how he was going to direct the lineage of Abraham. And that's an important distinction because it gives clarity to the next verse. Verse 13 says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That verse quotes Malachi chapter 1, the end of verse 2, Jacob have I loved, and the beginning of verse 3, but Esau have I hated. Malachi wrote those words hundreds of years after Jacob and Esau lived. It's a reference not to the brothers, but to the two nations. It's a reference to those nations that came out of the womb of Rebekah, those people that 
lived through those hundreds of years. And it fits perfectly into the flow of what Paul is saying here about national Israel. Paul's focus in these verses is, is the natural. It's the nation. And now he points out the historical difference between natural Israel and the nation of Esau, which are the Edomites in Scripture. The Edomites were, were always enemies of Israel. Esau's descendants harbored hatred and animosity towards the Israelites, towards the descendants of Jacob. Now, Jacob stole the birthright. You know the, you know the story. Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. And the, the Scripture leads us to believe that the brothers made peace with one another. And, and that after Jacob came back from Laban's house, there, there wasn't any animosity between them. They, they made peace together. But their descendants never made peace. The children of Esau harbored in their hearts hatred towards the children of Jacob because they had lost. They perceived not that God decided, but that Jacob through his craftiness, Jacob through his deception had stolen from them the blessing of God. See, they didn't understand what Paul is telling us here. Jacob didn't decide which way the blessing goes. Jacob isn't the one that decided who God was going to bless. God decided it before they were ever born. They didn't understand that. And so they blamed Jacob. And, and the history of those two nations is rife with conflict and trouble and problems. During, during the exodus from Egypt, Moses would take the Israelites to the land of Edom and he would, send a, he would send emissaries to the throne and say, We are of your brother Jacob. Please grant us, harbor us, uh, grant us harbor, grant us a place of, uh, of safe passage that we could come in and, and that we could be safe and that we could live off the land as we make our journey through Edom. But the Edomites said, No way, you're not coming if you step a foot in the boundaries of our land, if you come and you take anything that belongs to us, we're going to attack you. We're going we're gonna to destroy you. We're going to wipe out. We're not your friend. We're not your brother. We're your enemies. Their history is rife with, with the different attacks, unprovoked attacks by the Edomites on the Israelites. They would, they would stalk them in the wilderness. They would fight them. They would try to destroy them. They would try to kill them. After the nation of Israel was established, they would be a constant thorn in their flesh, a constant enemy against them. And, and, and because of that, the wrath of God was stirred up against the Edomites. And various prophets in the word of God would prophesy the day was going to come. When, the, when God would utterly destroy the Edomites and he would preserve Israelites because God hated the Edomites as were represented by Esau. And God loved the Israelites as were represented by Jacob. And that's the conflict that Malachi was speaking to. And that's what Paul is quoting here. Esau I've hated, but Jacob I have loved. The two examples of exclusion given in these verses. Give us in the person of Ishmael and Esau an example that proves the fact that God had sovereign right to bless Israel. Now this is something that the Jews of Paul's day, they understood this. Matter of fact, they believed this wholeheartedly. They would quickly tell you, God has the right to reject the Arabs. The Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael. God has the right to reject the Arabs and to bless Israel. That's his sovereign choice. They would tell you real fast, God has the right to reject the Edomites. And bless the children of Israel. He doesn't have to give an explanation for why. That's his right. He's sovereign. He chose Israel. He has that right. What Paul has done in these few verses is has turned that on its head. Because what Paul is saying is if God has that right with national Israel, then he has the same right with spiritual Israel. And just because you're a child of Abraham does not make you a child of God. You have to obey the gospel. God has that right. You have to submit to Jesus Christ. God has that right. 
You have to surrender your life at an altar of repentance. You have to die out to the old man. God has that right. You have to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? Go down in the water and have my sins washed away. That water won't even wash all the dirt off my body. But God has that right to say, you got to go down to the water and you got to be washed in the name of Jesus Christ. That's his right. He is sovereign. He is God. He has the right to say, you got to repent of your sins. Be baptized in the name and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's his right. So what Paul's done is he's turned it against them. They're, they're quick to point out, we're the children of Abraham. Who, who, they'd stand in the face of Jesus and say, who are you to oppose us? We're the children of Abraham. God chose to bless us and God has that right. And what Paul is saying is, who are you to withstand the church? God chooses who he blesses. God chooses the means and the method and the way of salvation. And God has made it clear that Jesus Christ is the only way. And if you reject him, you've rejected God. So the argument that if if the Jews are not saved by their heritage from Abraham, then somehow the word of God has failed them. And that's the argument that we started with a week or so ago that's invalid it falls on its face because God has the right of exclusivity he has the right to choose the way and the means and the method through which his blessing flows and he has that obligation to make known the right way but he doesn't have the obligation to bless anybody who follows any other way that's the truth of the word of God so even as The promise of Abraham was exclusive even to the rejection of other nations. We live today in a world that is seeing that play out right now. The Arabs are rejected as a nation. And the Israelites are favored as a nation in the eyes of God. And we're seeing that conflict play out on a world stage right now. And if God has that right then he has the right to determine who is his church and how you become a part of that church. It is just as exclusive. God has the right to say, listen, it's not dependent on what some preacher told you. It's not dependent on what your mama or your daddy said. It's not dependent on what you read somewhere else. It's in this book. It's in the Word of God. And God has the right to say, this is the book of life. This is the way to God. There is no other way. That's His right. Contrary to the opinions of many, and I'm quickly wrapping things up, but contrary to the opinions of many, these verses don't teach unconditional election in regards to salvation. The issue in this verse is not personal salvation at all. These verses deal with natural Israel and its place in the redemptive plan of God. God chose Israel to be the conduit through which the Messiah would come. And he was very exclusive about that choice. But inclusion in the natural lineage of Abraham was never a guarantee of salvation. Salvation has always been based on faith and obedience. Jacob was not chosen for salvation before he was born. And Esau was not rejected from a relationship with God before he was born. Each of them has free will. Their respective roles in the redemptive plan of God were chosen. God chose that he would bring the lineage of Abraham through the lineage of Jacob, but their salvation was not arbitrarily decided for them by God before they were ever born. It was within Jacob's own free will to reject the will of God for his life. And it was within the free will of Esau to turn his heart towards God and sincerely seek 
to know God. God didn't plan in advance that one brother would be lost and one brother would be saved. As a matter of fact, we can't even begin to, to pontificate on whether or not one is lost and one is saved. That's between them and God, and that's between their heart and God. God planned in advance the historical role that Jacob and Esau would play. But that does not mean he determined in advance the eternal status of their souls. That rests with them, with their own free will, just as it does with every man, woman, and child that's in this house today. Every person is responsible individually to the revealed plan of God for their day. So the question is then, why would God choose one brother over another? Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Perhaps it is because of the foreknowledge of God. Perhaps it's because God knew that Jacob would value the things of God and Esau would despise them. Perhaps it's because God saw something in Jacob they didn't see in Esau. I can tell you this much. It wasn't because Jacob was good and Esau was evil. You need to read your Bible. Jacob was a cheater. He was a liar. He was a swindler. He was a crook. His early years of his life were spent in deception. God didn't choose him because there was some inherent good in him. David Bernard suggests that the choice between Jacob and Esau may bear a deeper typology, a deeper typological significance. Time after time in the Old Testament, God reversed the normal pattern and chose the younger over the elder. In a, in a culture where the elder was favored and the younger was rejected, God chose over and over again to bless the younger over the elder. Seth, Seth I'm sorry, Seth, after Cain slew Abel, Seth was a combination of Seth and Abel. After Cain slew Abel, Seth was chosen by God over, a, over Cain. Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Jacob was chosen over Esau. Joseph, Joseph was chosen over all of his brothers. David was chosen over all of his brothers. Solomon was chosen over all of his brothers. None of those was the obvious choice. None of those were the oldest. None of those were the natural choice. None of those, you wouldn't have looked at it from the outside and said, well, this is, this is just the way society works. Or this is just the way culture works. But in every case, God emphasized that in spite of common logic, what is born second can be greater than what is born first. And that's an important principle because although we see the echoes of it in the Old Testament, we see the fulfillment of it in the New Testament. And it's in the New Testament that we discover why God does things out of order sometimes. It's because the second birth matters more to God than the first birth. The new man, the spiritual man, he finds life when we are born again. And it is that second man, that second birth uh, that becomes the most important in our life. The old man, the, the firstborn, the carnal man, the man of flesh, uh, that man has to be put in subjection to the secondborn, uh, the spiritual man that is born in my life when God fills me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. The older serves the younger. The flesh has to serve the spirit. So God values the second birth over the first. The point of the passage is not everyone who is a part of the nation of Israel is really a part of spiritual Israel. There is an exclusive difference between the two. Would you stand with me? One could carry the application one step further. And point out that not everyone who is a part of the 
physical organization called the church is a part of the spiritual reality that is the church. David Bernard said it this way. He called it the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church consists of those who associate themselves with the visible structure of the church. They're, they come to church. They're sitting on the pew. They're there at the functions. They sing. They, they give. They're, they're, they're a part of the church. But not all of them have true faith. Not all of them. Some of them that are in the physical representation, the visible church, are hiding secret sin in their hearts. Some of them are, are drifting away from God. Some of them have grown lukewarm. Some of them have lost out with God and are just going through the motions. The visible church is not the same as the invisible church, that spiritual church that is made up of those who are believers, those who are spirit-filled, and those who are alive and well in the Holy Ghost, that, that, that church that is composed of those that are in right standing with God, that are allowing the Spirit of God to reign in their life. No one is entitled to the spiritual privileges and blessings of salvation just because they associate themselves with a church. This is the point. You see, no one is entitled to say, I'm saved just because I'm a descendant of Abraham. And no one is entitled to say, I'm saved just because I don't miss church, just because I pay my tithes, just because I sing in the choir, just because I teach a Sunday school class, just because I, 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 I'm faithful in everything the church does. None of that entitles me to salvation. Just because I'm, I'm a part of the band or just because I'm a part of the youth leadership or just because I'm a part of the, the men's work crew, none of that, I, I, just because I donate all of my time, none of that I don't earn salvation by my works, and I'm not made a part of the spiritual reality as a church just because I associate myself with a church. You become a part of the church because of right standing between you and God. It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual transaction. A, a Jew can be a child of God, but they've got to obey the gospel of God. There's a spiritual transaction that takes place. If you want to inherit the spiritual promises and blessings of eternal life that belong to the church, then you have to be born again. God doesn't bless the first man. It's the second man that he blesses over and over and over again. I didn't mention Ephraim and Manasseh in a minute ago when I was given the list. But how many remember the story of Ephraim and Manasseh? He brought in Joseph's two sons. I want you to bless, bless the two grandsons. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Brought him before Jacob. Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's boys. Brought him before Jacob. On Jacob's deathbed, he was blessing his children, the children of Israel. See, Jacob became Israel. And he's blessing the children that will be the different tribes of Israel. You understand there's not a tribe of Joseph. There's a half tribe of Ephraim and a half tribe of Manasseh. That blessing that was supposed to be Joseph's is passed to his two, his two children, Jacob's grandson. And so when Joseph brings in those two boys that are going to represent one of those 12 tribes, and, and, and Jacob's getting ready to pass the blessing of the firstborn, Jacob, uh, Joseph guides his two sons up to, puts his oldest son on the right side and puts his youngest son on the left side so that, so that daddy, who is weak and frail, deathbed, who's, who's not entirely cognizant and aware, makes sure daddy's going to get it right. So he puts his oldest son underneath the right hand. But whenever Jacob gets ready to bless them, the Bible said he crossed his hands. 
And he put the right hand, the blessing hand, on the younger son. And Joseph said, wait a minute, Daddy, you got it wrong. You're you're blessing the wrong one. And Jacob said, I know exactly what I'm doing because God's chosen the second born. I got to tell you in this place today, if you want to be a part of the church, you have to be born again. God's chosen the second born. He's chosen the second birth. He's chosen the spiritual man to rule over the natural man. That's his sovereign right. He's God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I love you. I thank you for your goodness and your mercy, and I thank you for the word of God that's going forth this morning. Lord, I, I know sometimes it's difficult. We, we want to we want to reason things out. We want to judge things in our own understanding and according to our own knowledge. But you are God all by yourself. And you decide how you do things. And you decide what you do. And our only obligation is to obey the word of God. Uh, to be faithful to what you've said. So I'm asking in this house this morning, Lord, you'll allow the word that's going forth, Lord, to touch our hearts, to change us, Lord. Let the spirit of God minister to us. There are some of us, Lord, that we, we've drifted away some of us, Lord, that are a part of the visible church, Lord, but our heart is far from you. We know it, God. Amen. That are, that are backslidden in the heart, that have drifted away from you, Lord. And I'm asking God to stir us up this morning, Lord, to turn our heart back towards you, Lord, to get our, get our mind back on being a part of the kingdom of God, to set things right with you, God. And we don't have any claim. We don't have any other, any other claim to the spiritual blessing of God except that we're in right standing with you. And so I'm asking in the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ, Lord, you'd compel us, that you'd move us, Lord, to find a way to get back in right standing with you, to put it under the blood of Jesus Christ, to surrender everything to you, to let the spiritual man reign over the natural man. I'm asking God that you would let those that under the sound of my voice today that may not know what it is to be born again, Lord, to realize and recognize, God, that you'll never bless the physical man. You'll never bless the carnal man. You'll never bless the fleshly man you require that we are born again because you have chosen to bless the second man Esau have you hated but Jacob you've loved